You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And uh, before we get into today's episode, I want to say a little bit about our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since our launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information on DRI, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. So, Prashant, I know that I commented on last podcast uh, on the last podcast episode that we really do keep coming back to the Korean Peninsula a lot and Unfortunately, we're going to be back talking about the Korean Peninsula on this episode, so I hope listeners forgive us for uh, the two back-to-back episodes talking about the Korean uh, Peninsula affairs. But um, Kim Jong-un, North Korean leader, has been playing quite the statesman lately. We talked, of course, about his um, great summit with uh, Xi Jinping in Pyongyang. And, of course, one week later on Sunday uh, this past week, on June 30th, we saw the third U.S. DPRK summit take place while Donald Trump was in Seoul for a bilateral visit. And of course, Prashant, you and I talked about the possibility. Uh, so listeners of the Asia Geopolitics podcast hopefully weren't too surprised when the summit happened. Um, President Trump, I think, had an interesting way of unveiling it. He pretended like it was an idea that he had uh, while he was in the neighborhood. Literally, it was that, you know, hey, I'm, uh, I happen to be in Seoul. Why don't I check up if Kim Jong-un wants to meet me on literally his doorstep on uh, the MDL? So, um, yeah, we have a lot to talk about, I guess, uh, about the implications of the summit, what it changes, what it doesn't change, about the fundamentals of the ongoing diplomatic process between the United States and North Korea. But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, this weekend, uh, watching watching the way the summit was announced and, and calibrated, um, did you really think, uh, you know, when it was announced that the North Koreans would actually show up to this event? I mean, to be honest, as as is typical with with Trump and as we've seen with the North Korean issue, we really didn't know um, what to expect. Right? Um, we've seen repeated uh, attempts since the Hanoi summit and and the disappointment there to kind of revive this process, and this was the latest one. And and as you noted, uh, in a very unorthodox way, um, but very orthodox for Trump. I mean, he he sort of uh, issued the invite through Twitter. Um, and, and there was all kinds of speculation about whether this would actually happen. Uh, and finally, it did. And I think um, given the significance of the event symbolically, it, it's not surprising that um, a lot of folks were focusing on, on the, the actual events that were taking place. But I think now that the dust has settled, um, you know, the big question for us, which we actually explored in the last episode as well, is that, you know, even if a, a summit takes place um, and and we kind of see continued interactions at the leader level, will this actually translate into any progress at the working level? And will this actually get us any closer to some kind of, uh, not necessarily resolution, but some, some, some kind of agreement, even if it's tentative between the two sides? And I still don't think we have a, a sense of that, um, but we've at least had an, another historic uh, occasion between the two of them, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's right. And look, I mean, my 
my general impression of this process has been that it's been a little bit circular. We've been retreading familiar ground a lot of the time. I'll give you one example. Uh, so last year in May, before the Singapore summit, a uh, senior administration official uh, at the White House uh, did a conference call talking about North Korea's concessions leading up to the demolition of the Punggye-ri nuclear test site in May last year. And what this official said was that the North Koreans had told the Americans uh, over the course of working level talks that they would be happy to invite inspectors to the Punggye-ri uh, test site. And then, of course, Singapore happens and that is never discussed again. Until, of course, much later in the year in October when Pompeo goes to North Korea. And then guess what the concession is? The North Koreans are going to allow inspectors to come into the Punggye-ri nuclear test site. That was sort of heralded at the time as a major breakthrough. But of course, if you'd, if you'd been paying attention, it was really familiar ground and it wasn't necessarily anything new. And of course, you know, the, the, the bigger thing is that we actually haven't had any inspectors enter North Korea. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, uh, in April of this year, we actually crossed the 10-year mark since the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, was last in North Korea. So it's been quite a, uh, quite a while since there have been any inspectors there. But, you know, the, the lesson from that anecdote is that the big outcome of this third DMZ summit, which is that Steve Began, the senior, um, the special envoy on uh, North Korea, and Che Sun-hee, the first vice minister of foreign affairs in North Korea, who was just elevated in April at the um, at the Supreme People's Assembly uh, in in North Korea, the two of them are now going to be convening a working level process. But of course, we've had a working level process between the U.S. and North Korea, both before Singapore and certainly after Singapore. Mike Pompeo went in um, June or sorry, July to North Korea uh, for ultimately talks that failed and ended up getting him called gangster like. So I'm a little skeptical, again, as you noted, that the fundamentals here have changed, right? Uh, basically, what I mean by that is that the North Koreans are still not ready to give up their nuclear weapons. Nothing they've said publicly indicates that they are ready to give up their nuclear weapons. And at the same time, what U.S. officials are saying, uh, and, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this because there was that interesting New York Times article, and tonight actually Axios expanded a little bit on right. that. But what U.S. officials are saying is that, you know, we're still not ready to provide North Korea with any kind of sanctions relief going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, I, I was going to actually go off of that point that you mentioned earlier, which is that while we're talking about U.S. policy, there are these, you know, repeated reports, the New York Times article that you mentioned, as well as Axios about, you know, differing interpretations within the administration as to what the United States actually wants from these negotiations, right? We saw a little bit of foreshadowing of this with Bolton and his comments that, you know, you know, really, we're not seeking any sort of freeze, and we're still going for the goal of denuclearization, in spite of the fact that, um, you know, as we've discussed before, that seems very unlikely, if not impossible. Um, but there's still these, you know, reports that are emerging about differences within the administration as to what the end goal should be. But more importantly, you know, as we've discussed before, um, irrespective of what the United States wants from North Korea, even if it's a freeze or, or, or what have you, um, it's not clear to me, at least, that there's been any revelations about what the administration is willing to give up uh, for that. And it, you know, it'd be interesting to hear at least, you know, from the administration what exactly they have in mind. I don't sense that we have any clarity on that. Um, so I guess that's the big point uh, that that we should probably explore a little bit, which is, you know, what are the differences within the administration, but also how would the U.S. position be expected to evolve with these working level talks, especially since those have already occurred and they've broken down multiple times. Yeah, I mean, so the New York Times article, um, I'll just sum up the core thesis in case some of our listeners missed it. Uh, so the, right after the, the DMZ summit this past weekend, um, David Sanger and Michael Crowley in the New York Times wrote an article suggesting that the administration 
was um, contemplating the prospect of beginning this process with North Korea by asking for a freeze of North Korea's production, uh, probably a fissile material, ballistic missiles, and uh, possibly all WMD. Uh, that's basically what experts have been recommending for a long time is the, uh, the basic formula and people you know, disagree in good faith about how exactly to do this, but there's a three-step process that you can do with North Korea that's um, different from the classic uh, American official approach, which is a big deal where North Korea gives up all of its WMD and in exchange, mm -hmm. all of the sanctions are lifted. And that basic approach is cap, reduce, eliminate. So it begins by freezing North Korea's arsenal so it doesn't get any bigger. And over the time we build trust, we get to the point where we begin to reduce that arsenal uh, bit by bit. And eventually over the long term, get to a point where we eliminate all of North Korea's WMD. So the administration, according to this New York Times article, was apparently considering this, except it's a, it's a really curious article because the sourcing was um, really unclear to me uh, who were the sources, uh, where they were in the administration. And what's most interesting is that Steve Began is actually on record in this article, effectively rebutting the central thesis that anybody is considering this freeze. But then, of course, Axios expanded on that tonight, uh, talking about remarks that apparently Began gave to reporters on the flight back from Seoul saying that there was a little bit more flexibility and they and the basic framework hadn't changed that they still wanted the North Koreans to agree to a overall roadmap um, and then begin implementing that uh, piece by piece. But, you know, you raised a good point is that what are we willing to give the North Koreans? And what Began said is that um, two things, humanitarian relief and better dipl uh, diplomatic ties. Um, and I'm sorry, but that's just that's just too low of a price, right? Um, yeah. the, the problem here is you either have to, um, you know, if you don't want to pay the price that the North Koreans asked for in Hanoi, which was they offered um, the um, weapons-grade fuel cycle facilities at Yongbyon, which is a massive complex comprising 300 buildings, in exchange for the relief of all sort of civilian economy pertaining uh, clauses across uh, UN resolutions, five UN resolutions passed in 2016 and 2017. And the administration, I think, rightly saw that as far too high of a price for what the North Koreans were offering. So if you're not happy with the price, you can do two things is you can try to buy something that's a little bit smaller and cheaper, or you can decide that you're going to offer the North Koreans a different deal at a different price, right? And I think what the administration is thinking that they're going to get more for less here. And I just don't think that's going to happen. In fact, if we go back to Kim Jong-un's New Year's Day address this year, which I think has really set the tone for the North Korean position after Singapore, they see what they did last year um, as effectively a freeze of sorts, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not a freeze that I'm happy with, but they see the fact that they said that they're not going to test ICBMs, that they dismantled the Pungiri nuclear test site, that Kim Jong-un made a pledge this year at New Year's, uh, you know, not to proliferate, use, or make, um, I don't have the exact text in front of me, but he made a pledge about North Korea's um, nuclear weapons. He sees all of that as effectively a unilateral pledge to cap uh, the activities. And as we saw from various reports citing U.S. intelligence sources last year, that's not necessarily true, but like uh, North Korea's nuclear arsenal does continue to expand. So the administration, I think, is is still in a bit of a conundrum. And of course, John Bolton publicly on Twitter also uh, ripped apart the New York Times article. So as you as you correctly noted, there is still quite a bit of disagreement within the administration. But, you know, the lesson from the summit, and this is what Kim Jong-un said, um, is that Trump and Kim can still meet each other. And the relationship between the two of them is very good, even if the relationship between the two countries is not great. And that second bit, what I just said, is actually almost verbatim what Kim Jong-un said in April in his first public remarks after the Hanoi collapse. So right. my advice to people following this North Korea diplomacy is to really kind of avoid getting 
starry-eyed after every Trump-Kim encounter and thinking that that's really going to make a difference in the fundamentals. I know that's a very pessimistic assessment, uh, but I really think that uh, until we see a change in the U.S. negotiating position, it's going to be very difficult to have any kind of productive talks. Yeah, which I guess gets us to um, the other question moving forward, which is that, you know, as you pointed out at the outset, we sort of have been going around in circles with respect to um, these working level negotiations and then the process breaking down a little bit and then another high level meeting between the two leaders and that kind of gets us all excited again. Um, but, you know, sort of the one benign interpretation is that this cycle would sort of continue to go on because you have Trump now increasingly the United States is moving towards the presidential election and Trump may want to sort of sell this North Korea issue as you know one of his big accomplishments or achievements. Um, and on the North Korean side, perhaps they're going to wait out um, Trump for the, for to see if he actually has a second term or they're going to deal with uh, a new president. But you know the 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 other part of me, which is more skeptical, says you know the the North Koreans do technically, as we've discussed at this podcast before. I mean, they have been very clear about the fact that there is a sort of informal deadline that they have, and this sort of approach that they're adopting on negotiations is not going to last forever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and given the fact that Trump, um, you know, is prone to also change his mind and we're, we could see um, the North Korea issue emerge as we get closer to the presidential election as being a domestic political issue, where if the administration moves towards uh, sort of a freeze uh, more publicly, um, you know, Trump may be criticized for giving up the goal of denuclearization and actually negotiating from a, a point of weakness. So I, I, I sort of, um, you know, I. I know some folks are hoping for the cycle to kind of continue and maybe we'd outlast the Trump administration, but I'm not so sure if this is necessarily guaranteed to last um, until the end of next year. Yeah, no, I, I think we've already seen in multiple statements from Democrats running for president that, you know, they're they're criticizing Trump, which I think is actually a little bit unfair, right? I mean, Tim Ryan, uh, mm-hmm. who's one of the, I guess, also ran Democratic presidential candidates. There's uh, so many of them, uh, you know, compared it to uh, compared the summit to, you know, Neville Chamberlain meeting Adolf Hitler, which I thought was a little <laughs> bit overwrought. Uh, so Democrats are effectively, you know, um, you, you can criticize Trump. You can criticize this diplomatic process for not having substance. Um, but, you know, no U.S. president is, is going to get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons in the short term, especially. So criticizing Trump for doing something that no president can do. Um, probably isn't the productive way forward for Democrats. But I agree that this is probably going to emerge as a central theme of the 2020 uh, presidential elections insofar as foreign policy is concerned. Uh, the mm-hmm. only other thing I'll add um, on on the going around on cir- um, you know going around in circles observation is um, the role of uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in. Um, Moon has really played the firefighter um, since since last year, right? He He swoops in at sort of critical moments to really salvage the U.S. North Korea diplomatic process, and uh, a couple examples again from last year that come to mind immediately uh, is the second inter-Korean summit, which often goes forgotten, but it was the impromptu summit the day Donald Trump canceled the Singapore summit after the North Koreans criticized Mike Pence in a strongly worded statement. Uh, Moon Jae-in rushed to the DMZ, met with Kim Jong-un, and then again uh, liaised with the United States, played the middleman, and managed to bring the two sides to a place where they could actually meet in Singapore, right? So Mm -hmm. he deserves credit for that. And then, of course, after Singapore, things begin to decline. Pompeo gets called gangster-like, and in August, he cancels a trip to North Korea, and the mood is quite 
tense in Washington. People think this is about to fall apart. And in swoops, Moon Jae-in for the third inter-Korean summit in Pyongyang, signs a major agreement, uh, gets Kim Jong-un to commit to a few other things on denuclearization, then travels to uh, New York and Washington after that trip uh, to talk to the United States. And then, of course, the trip is sort of salvaged. And this time, I think we saw a similar role being played by Moon Jae-in. He really used the opportunity of this bilateral meeting to facilitate a, a meeting between um, Trump and Kim, right? So there's a lot that we still don't know behind the scenes about how this meeting actually came through. I mean, as we discussed on the last podcast, there were a lot of signs pointing towards the fact that something might happen at the DMZ. But I think mm -hmm. Moon was especially critical. And if you were watching the video of the summit at the DMZ, Moon's sort of standing there while Trump and Kim shake hands, and then the two of them walk towards Moon Jae-in, and he's sort of the liaison between the two of them. Of course, he doesn't go into the room for an official trilateral summit, uh, but the three leaders did have a un, uh, you know an, an informal trilateral encounter, which is the first ever uh, U.S. North Korea ROK high-level trilateral encounter. So that's I think uh, quite significant in itself, and. Um, we'll see. We'll see what um, you know. Moon has to do from here on out to ensure that things remain on the right track. But I think it's really worth emphasizing that the South Korean president continues to play a really important role in uh, keeping this um, uh, keeping this process alive. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Agreed. There. And and I think that's that's important to keep in mind too because we have this U.S. North Korea situation going on amid also a lot of uncertainty about. Um, the president's own attitude and and sort of policy positions towards alliances, right? And we saw a little bit of that before his trip to the region when, you know, he, he sort of mentioned something about the U.S.-Japan alliance and that created additional uncertainties there. Um, and so you, you do have this being not just a U.S.-North Korea discussion, but something between North Korea and these various countries in the region, but also the United States and its allies. Yeah. Um, so one final observation that I think is worth adding before we wrap up the discussion is on the internal North Korean dynamics uh, leading up to this summit and in the aftermath of the summit. So uh, a lot of American commentators, including many Democrats, were very critical, uh, very critical of the president for you know handing Kim Jong Un a propaganda victory. And we can talk about you know the extent to which that is true. Uh, I think on the international stage, you know, um, after the Singapore summit, there's really no putting the genie back in the bottle. Kim Jong-un has been normalized in a big way as a uh, as the leader of a nuclear weapons-possessing country and as a global statesman of sorts, right? And the fact that he's met with Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, and Donald Trump sort of makes him one of the most coveted moral leaders to meet with, at least in the first half of uh, 2018. So that's that. Um, but the other issue is that I think we talked about this a little bit after Hanoi, but uh, the North Koreans sort of hinted publicly that Kim Jong-un had taken some risks by going to Hanoi, that he had faced mm -hmm. uh, petitions in North Korea. That's what Chae Sun-hee told uh, diplomats in Pyongyang in a rare press conference in the middle of March, um, that he had ignored petitions from the munitions industry, uh, the munitions industry being the guys who designed North Korea's uh, missiles, uh, artillery systems, and all sorts of other advanced weapons. He had defied their wishes, and he'd gone to Pyong um, gone to Hanoi to talk to the Americans. And of course, he ultimately got egg on his face when the Americans refused to budge on sanctions relief. So um, we don't know exactly a lot about the internal political dynamics in North Korea. And it might sound a little bit silly to talk about politics in North Korea because it is a monolithic authoritarian country, but politics exist like they do everywhere. And um, for Kim, this meeting I thought was framed very interestingly in North Korean state media after it happened. It emphasized, uh, so the, um, the Nodong Shinmun, the North Korean state paper, 
uh, very prominently portrayed the events of the summit. Massive pictures of Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump smiling at the at the joint security area at the Panmun, um, at Panmunjom on the demilitarized zone, and it emphasized that Kim had gone there at Trump's invitation. So this was, you know, the United States courting the supreme leader of North Korea to go to literally his doorstep to to have this meeting. And I think for uh, Kim Jong-un, this meeting will serve as evidence that he can still negotiate with the Americans in good faith and that there may still be something to be gained. That said, Mm -hmm. I don't think the North Koreans, you know, you hinted earlier at the end of year deadline that Kim Jong-un put in place uh, for the Americans to come around on sanctions relief. I don't think that has changed. Um, But... I think for any internal naysayers on the prospect of diplomacy with the United States, the the summit, I think, served an important role. So I think uh, Kim Jong-un may have further latitude to uh, continue to engage the United States um, going forward as well. Yeah, great. I mean, and I think that's really important to emphasize that, um, you know, in spite of the fact that North Korea is a pretty opaque uh, regime, uh, it still has its domestic politics, just like the United States. Yeah, All right, Prashant. uh, Well, thanks for, uh, I guess, jumping on this emergency podcast to talk a bit about the Korean Peninsula again. I promise the listeners we're going to move away from this on the next episode. So uh, (laughs) uh, do do stay tuned for more. And um, yeah, a good way to do that is to uh, subscribe to the Asia Geopolitics podcast. You can do that on Google Play, iTunes, or Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. It really uh, helps the show uh, get out there a little bit more and helps us pick up more listeners. So thanks a lot for listening. And we'll be back probably this week again with another episode.